You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends. Glad you're here with me. I'm going to tell you a story from my 40th birthday. We were in Playa del Carmen, Mexico, which is the beach town where I am now. It's about an hour drive south of Cancun. My wife and I are married here in 2018, and we keep coming back because we like it so much. If you're considering a vacation here, which I do recommend, it's not a vacation destination where you need to stay on the beach. So if you've been to like Gulf Shores or Destin, Florida, or even Cancun, there it's ideal to stay on the beach. Playa del Carmen is different. Even though the town is named after a beach in Spanish, there's something called Avenida Cinco here, which runs parallel to the beach. And a lot of the action is on that avenue. So we actually stay on the other side of the avenue from the beach. And we love the building we stay in. It's got a rooftop pool, it's got security, it's got a weight room, it's got a business center. So anyway, I was in the business center the morning of my birthday and my wife came in and said, I've got a birthday present for you. Will you come back to the condo with me? So we walked back to the condo and before we go in, she asked me to put a blindfold on. And I'm thinking, oh man, I must be in in for a big surprise. And I had been surprised once before on my 30th birthday And it was a surreal feeling. I remember feeling like I was floating. And I guess that's the sensation that you feel when your brain tries to figure a bunch of things out while being excited at the same time. I don't know. I've only ever felt this once in my life. But it's like I was trying to trying to factor in like, how did you get here? And if you were invited, then I'll bet he was invited. And and how did this happen behind my back? And I just talked to you and, you know. You're doing all these, trying to account for everything and make different calculations and, and you feel all this gratitude and you want to thank everybody and you don't know where to start and everybody's blurry, so you're not really sure who's there. <laughs> it's really crazy. And, and then I remember thinking like, what, what is my face doing? Am I, do I look shocked or excited or am I crying? I don't know what's going on. So it's just a really overwhelming, awesome feeling. I highly recommend it. <laughs> so that day she sits me on the couch and pulls my blindfold off and in front of me is a cake. And I was, I love the cake. She knows I'm obsessed with maps and the world and globes and all that. So it was a round cake that had the outline of the continents. It looked really well done. And around it, it said, happy 40th man overseas. So I was thanking her profusely. And she said, open the card, please. So I had kind of forgotten about the card. So I grabbed the card. And on the front, it said, happy birthday, man overseas. And I kind of still expect it in the back of my mind. I'm like, I'll bet you Chase and Byron are going to come down the stairs or Billy and my dad are going to come busting through the front door. Like something's going on here. And because she wouldn't have just done this for a cake, right? So anyway, the front of the card said, you've been the most amazing husband. And then I opened it and it said, and you're going to make the most amazing father to our child. I'm pregnant. (laughs) How about that? Best gift ever 
<laughs> I mean, you're never going to top that. So I, I just kept saying, I can't believe it. I, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I was not expecting it at all. I'm always thinking in terms of probabilities and I would not have bet on that. So hoped for it, prayed for it, but totally unexpected. I don't know how she kept it from me for so long. She's due in January. This was June 19th. So pretty awesome. We're back in the building where all that went down and we'll be here until September 6th. So thank you for tuning in. We're going to talk today about the life lessons post that I wrote that day. I had asked in an Instagram story what it is that listeners would like me to talk about. And there was a tie between a deeper dive into 40 pieces of life advice and personal finance slash investing. So what I'm going to do is take 40 pieces of life advice and just kind of focus on those that pertain to personal finance. Sort of like, hey, it's Wednesday, November 4th, and I'm going to please half of you. (laughs) But aren't you glad I didn't accept mail-in voting because I'd still be counting the votes, right? But you can log on to the internet. You can log in and vote on Instagram. You can go to the grocery store. A few listeners, knowing I would be talking about investing today, asked me to recommend a few stocks. I'll mention a few, but you should know that I don't recommend buying individual stocks. It's just about the riskiest investment you can make. It is far better, especially if you're a novice investor and don't have several hours a day to be reading and researching individual businesses the way that Warren Buffett might. It is far better for you to buy the whole market rather than try to pick winners. It's the idea that you shouldn't try to find the needle when you can buy the whole haystack. Buying the whole haystack would look like buying into funds such as Vanguard Total Stock Market Index, ticker symbol VTSAX. For those of you who are in a position to take a little risk, meaning you're not buried under mounds of debt, you have other investments in place like tax-advantaged retirement accounts, maybe you have some real estate holdings, and you have some time to do a little reading and research, then by all means, take a small percentage of your net worth, I never do more than 10%, and start taking some calculated risk. I started doing this in my 20s with a small portion of my paychecks, and doing so has helped me to build quite a bit of wealth. So while I don't recommend buying individual stocks, and I'm definitely not a trader, like many young people I see taking half of their net worth and risking it trading stocks on apps like Robinhood, I'm definitely not one of those people. I'm an investor. I don't buy anything I wouldn't be willing to hold at least 10 years, which is the same strategy that Warren Buffett follows. I'm an old soul that way. Because remember, most of investing is boring, most successful investing anyway. It's taking action and sitting on your hands, resisting the temptation to do a bunch of buying and selling. People who don't invest well typically don't lack intelligence. They lack temperament. If it were as difficult to check the value of your stock portfolio as it is to check the value of your real estate holdings, you wouldn't have to resist the temptation to buy and sell so much. But as it is, those pretty black and blue apps we have on our phones that light up green most days, they make us want to take action, especially when we start seeing consecutive days of red. But your your emotional and psychological makeup must be strong so that you're not 
too active in the markets. Not if you wish to be wealthy someday. Many people pay exorbitant fees to what they call a financial guy or their wealth manager. And oftentimes, the greatest value that a money manager provides to the client is talking them off the ledge. But if you can discipline yourself to not even open the window to access the ledge, so to speak, when the market drops 30 to 40 percent, you will have saved yourself a ton of money. So you're paying for that crutch because management fees compound too. I have a friend who's been paying 1% management fees to her financial guy for 20 years. She has somewhere between $500,000 and $750,000 in assets. That's based on context clues. (laughs) She didn't tell me right out, but that's what I imagine she has. 1% compounded over 20 years adds up to a lot of money. Over 40 years, it'll reduce her account balance by 25%. Think of it. Based on her savings rate and how much she's contributing to her retirement or brokerage accounts, she should have about $2 million at retirement. That's if she decides not to retire early, which she just might. I've heard her say that she and her husband may decide to call it quits in their mid-50s and travel the world, stay in Airbnbs for 30 days at a time. I don't know where she got that wild idea, but I like it. But instead of them having $2 million to retire on, which should produce an income stream of $80,000 a year that they can comfortably live on, of course, their house will likely be paid off by this time. $80K a year is about $6,600 a month. That's 4% of their assets. And then any social security or pension they have coming in is Lanyap. It'll be bonus money when it comes. And they'll be able to live on 4% of their assets without even touching the principal. And what does that mean? Well, it means they can leave a hell of a legacy if that's what they decide to do. Normally, once people hit about age 85, that's the average age they start spending a little bit of their principal. But she won't have, they won't have $2 million. Why not? Well, because she refused to adapt to the modern era and make an adjustment to the outrageous money management fees she's been paying since the 90s. Nobody should be paying 1% of their assets to an asset manager. So I offered to help her for much less than 1%. Unfortunately, if she doesn't take me up on that, she'll only have a a million and a half dollars because she's insistent on doing things the way that they've always been done. I think she's scared of change. There's nothing wrong with needing help with your asset allocations. And of course, you'd want to hire somebody to help you if you don't trust yourself not to sell when there's blood in the streets. When that that's exactly when you should be buying. But a lot of people sell. I have a question for you, beautiful listeners. Did you buy during this recent drop, the market drop in March? If no, why not? Well, maybe you weren't yet subscribed to the Man Overseas podcast. (laughs) But Brad, aren't you violating the rule of not trying to time the market? Yes. Under normal circumstances, I am dollar cost averaging. Because when you try to time the market, you're very likely to miss single, large gains, big days in the market. And when you miss just a few big days, you might as well not be investing at all. Your returns will be abysmal. And if you need an example, think back to March. Four of the biggest days of the year happened while the market was collapsing. On March 13th, the market was up 9.3%. March 17th, up 6%. March 24th, the market was up 9.6%. March 26th, 9.4% to the good pot. 
But yes, when I start seeing live turds getting sliced up in the fan blades, you can bet I'm going to I'm going to start deploying some of my cash. And you should, too. Many people were were panic selling at the first whiff of a fart in a car. They thought it was going to get worse and wanted no part of it. Sure, it wasn't you that dealt it. You didn't cause the problem. But you got to stay in there and battle through it. You'll be much worse off if you get out at first whiff rather than wait for somebody to turn the fan on. You got to hold on to your stocks. Shit will hit that fan. Happens about once a decade. And that's precisely the wrong time to sell. But if you did sell, and many people did, I read that by the end of March 2020, 31% of those who invest with Fidelity who were over the age of 65, sold every single one of their equities, 31%. That's incredible. Everyone who was within earshot of me who's over 65 was either buying VGT, which is a Vanguard technology ETF, or they were buying Zoom, which seems to have replaced Skype as the verb we use when we want to do a video conference call. But I'm a contrarian. That's what we were doing. But if you sold and lost a bunch of money... There's a lesson in that loss, and that lesson is a gift for which you're now grateful. Those who sold aren't the only folks who missed out when there was doo-doo on the fan blades. Those who had no cash to deploy also missed out. If it hurts, maybe that's a good thing. Oftentimes, strong emotion is required for change to take place, and that change might be living more deliberately. Living deliberately in this circumstance would be calling a meeting with your spouse and saying, hey, boo, where you at? How much money are you planning to spend this month? We need to get our spending under control. On my walk this morning, I was listening to the Man O podcast, and he was talking about the doo-doo and the feces and taking advantage of downturns in the market. He said people build massive wealth by just knowing how much they spend every month so that they can deploy fistfuls of cash when the market takes a nosedive. The lesson there is to make sure you keep some cash on the sidelines so that you can take advantage of the next downturn because it'll happen. It always does. By the way, cash doesn't necessarily mean actual bills or efectivo, as they say here in Mexico. Crisp Benny Franklin's with the big faces, that is cash. But cash is also money sitting in a checking or savings or money market account. I hope if I've just described you, by the way, that is you either sold when the market started tanking or you didn't have a cash position to where you could start deploying some of it. I hope that you feel as if you're being coached rather than lectured to. This isn't a lecture. The person who feels challenged can't be bullied. That may be the stoic in me talking. Epictetus said, as long as you live, keep learning how to live. To err is human, but to persist in the mistake is diabolical. Which reminds me, I had a listener last week contact me from Maryland. I love hearing from new listeners. He's a physician who said that he's a big fan of the podcast because we intertwine financial independence and investing and personal development, stoic philosophy, all of those things better than any podcast. First off, that's really high praise and I appreciate it. Thank you. But secondly, he helped me to realize that although we rarely talk about stoicism directly as I just did, it sure does underpin much of what we discuss here. The basic premise of stoicism is that there's something positive in every negative. Either you're going to win or you're going to learn. Perhaps this is a good time to remind you, don't take investment advice from a podcast host. But I promised you I would mention a few stocks. I'm not recommending these, but if you're free of debt and taking advantage of retirement accounts, at least up to the employer match, take some chances. 
It's something I started doing in 2007 and it's worked for me. It's fun and you learn a lot. Again, not something I do with more than about 10% of my net worth. But what I, what I do is simply pay attention to what products and services I use and love. It could be what people are using at work, what their customers are using. It could be clothes that you wear or you see everyone wearing and loving, whatever. Because if someone, or I should say if everyone, seems to be using and loving a product or service, that could be a good company to invest in. But just because it might seem like a good company to invest in doesn't guarantee that it's managed well. Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling could be atop that company and you wouldn't know it. A company headquartered in my hometown of Houston, I never would have thought would implode the way that Enron did. Well, that's where Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling were. If you investigated the company, if you did all your research prior to buying the stock, you, you probably still wouldn't have noticed what they were doing, what was going on. So you never want to put all your eggs in one basket. I just want you to consider how wealthy you'd be today if every time you bought a product or service, you also set aside some money to invest in their stock. And I'll give you some examples. Do you use Excel? Do you have a LinkedIn profile? That's Microsoft. It's gone up over a thousand percent over the last 10 years. What about Facebook? Do you use Facebook or Instagram? Have you seen House of Cards or Ozark? What about Tiger King? That's Netflix. Do you have a Prime membership? That's Amazon. Let's talk about Amazon for a minute because I want to demonstrate the mindset of an investor who's willing to take some calculated risk for the potential serious reward. And the mindset that you have to have if you're going to build wealth through equities, and I use the words equities and stocks interchangeably, they mean the same thing, but the mindset you have to have is pretty stoic. Okay, so let's say you purchased Amazon stock in 1998, which is the year I graduated high school. The internet was in its infancy. You would think you're the greatest stock picker of all time, right? If you got in early on Amazon, they were basically an online bookstore in the 90s. Well, the stock closed on Friday, August 28th, 2020, just a few days ago, at over $3,400 a share. Since you bought in in 98, let's say, for example, it's been all feast, right? You would think it's all been up and to the right. There's been no famine. It's all to the good pop. Well, you'd be wrong because on March 1st of 1999, Amazon closed at the end of the day at a record $86.09 a share. Two and a half years later, precisely 30 months from that date, September 1st, 2001, Amazon stock closed at $5.97 a share, $5.97. That's over a, a 93% drop in the stock. You think you would have held on to that as, as it's dropping precipitously to almost zero? Let's say you had $10,000 invested in Amazon. As it drops below $2,000 and $1,200 and $900, as it keeps going down to $700, you think you would have stayed on that wave all the way down and stuck with it? Probably not. So it can be a roller coaster. And you got to have the emotional and psychological makeup to be able to, to build wealth this way. What does Amazon look like five years from now? You think there's room for growth? Well, consider this. 89% of Amazon's revenues now come from just four countries. The U.S., Germany, the U.K., and Japan. Analysts expect annual growth of 34%. Now, since you wouldn't want to buy a stock unless you were going to hold it for 10 years, 
you got to ask yourself, is 34% annual growth, is that sustainable? Let me put it to you this way. If Amazon returns 15% annually for the next 25 years, and America's GDP growth is a steady 3%, that means Amazon will be larger than the entire U.S. economy at close to $50 trillion 25 years from now. Who knows what the future holds? How about Apple? I have two MacBooks, I've bought several iPhones, and I have more AirPods than I care to admit. I like to say if you've purchased Apple stock, you're probably getting your products paid for because it's done so well. But these are just technology companies. What about Costco? You ever shop there? People who have a Costco membership have a tough time getting rid of it because they love it. Annual membership fees are a a nice recurring revenue stream for any business. Or what about the clothes you wear? Have you noticed the athleisure trend? If you rode around Houston, Texas on a Saturday morning, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody not wearing athletic wear. And you know what the most popular brand is? It's Lululemon. I've been a fan of Lululemon for probably 10 years. You ever hear the story of how they came about or how the founder decided on the name? The guy's name is Chip Wilson. He said that he would see women snowboarding, and when they were a 10, the pants they wore to go snowboarding looked amazing. But when they were less than a 10, they didn't look good at all. So his vision was to design women's pants that made every woman look like a 10. Here's how he came up with the name. He said, before Lululemon, he had a company called Homeless, and he said the Japanese liked it because it had an L in it. Evidently, he uses a Japanese marketing firm to help him. But he said they don't come up with brand names that have L's because L isn't in their vocabulary. So it's very hard for them to pronounce. So Wilson decided his next company would have three L's and he joked that he'd get three times the revenue and it'd be funny to watch the Japanese try to say the name. (laughs) Now let's take a deeper dive into 40 pieces of life advice. Number two on the list, the self-educated don't need credentials or validation. They're results focused. When I was your age, I had to buy all the shit you get free now use it. I talked about ROI or return on investment as it pertains to college education in the last episode, so I don't want to repeat myself, but ROI should be one of the most important factors influencing one's decision decision about where to go to school. So if he or she is, is going to go to school at all, the amount spent on things like tuition and board need to be considered. You should be asking yourself, what sort of return am I expecting on the some total of eighty dollars to $100,000 if I'm paying $20,000 a year. So once you graduate, what does the return look like? The university system in America is mostly just a credentialing system. Its value is being diminished as we speak, largely due to the internet, where you can learn just about anything. So while the value of formalized education goes down, the cost of tuition has correspondingly gone up. And that doesn't make any sense. But hear me out. Experiences in college vary widely at different schools. If you have a specific career ambition, like you want to be a Supreme Court justice, you probably want to go to Yale Law School. And if it costs $50,000 a year to go to Yale Law School, that may be a good investment. If you wish to be a physician, you better get your ass in school, right? Because most want a doctor who is formally educated. But for many, if not most professions, school just isn't worth it at this point. I look at a lot of people's financials because I coach people, because I consult for people who are buying real estate. 
I have tenant applications that I'm reviewing regularly when I have vacancies in my own rental properties. And let me tell you, too many people go into way too much debt to get a formalized education, and they should not have done that. Now, you might say, well, what about the socialization aspect of college and the connections you make that can really help your career? Okay, but that's still not reason to spend tens of thousands of dollars on tuition. I knew many people who moved to Austin, Texas and got an apartment and went to the same bars on 6th Street as those who were taking difficult data sciences classes down the street at UT Austin. Hell, two of my best friends in the world are, are from high school. They always said that you'd make your best friends in college, but my two best friends are, are, were made in high school. Technology just makes it too easy to keep in touch with people. You don't need to make friends in college maybe as much as you needed to in the past. And as for making connections, if you live in Dallas or Houston, which are the areas I'm most familiar with, nobody gives a good goddamn where you went to school. Can you bring it every day? Tell me about your habits. Tell me how your habits and growth mindset get you to where you want to go. Do your peers consider you a good teammate or a great teammate? Why is that? Tell me about a time you focused on an objective and beat the living shit out of it into submission and achieved what you wanted to achieve. Why? Because I want to know that your results focused. What book is on your nightstand? I want to know that you're investing in yourself. Because if you're not investing in yourself, why the hell should I? Hey, answer my question. Show me you can communicate without all the fluff. And don't start with to be honest. I expect honesty at all times. Oh, you got into Texas A&M? Got a degree? Wow, you must be really good at taking tests. And if your parents paid for that education, then I need to know what money you personally invested in your better future. My education didn't start until I graduated from college. What about you? Have you read How to Win Friends and Influence People? If not, what's your excuse for not re reading that book? So I would encourage anyone considering college or considering sending their kid to college, pay very close attention to the accelerating pace of change. What do I mean by that? Credentials already don't mean as much as they used to. I worked in two industries where a college degree was not required, software and real estate. The barriers to entry for real estate are nearly nil. The barriers to entry if you're a good software engineer... Well, I'll just say this. I worked for a very successful startup with an ace engineering team. Those guys were studs. If not for them, I'm not here talking to you right now. The best among them did not have a college degree. Now, on the sales side, the hiring managers did seem to use a, a college degree as sort of a filtering mechanism. A degree shows you started something and completed it. Congratulations. You just accomplished what a high school diploma used to be. As I said last episode with Alex Feinberg, I didn't have one friend in high school who didn't go to college. Nowadays, you can take online classes from MIT and Harvard. You can learn almost anything you want to learn on YouTube. You can take master classes from experts in the field you want to go into. So to wrap up number two from 40 Pieces of Life Advice, become self-educated and focus on results. The great Charlie Munger once said, there's one quality of Warren Buffett that he holds in especially high esteem. And that's his ability to be a lifelong learning machine. He said, if you take Warren Buffett and watched him like a time clock, I would say half of all the time he spends is sitting on his ass and reading. Without lifelong learning, you're not going to do very well. You're not going to get very far in life based on what you already know. Now, the first part of that quote is from a 2007 commencement speech given by Munger. 
at the University of Southern California. How would 20-year-old me get to hear a speech like that? I'd probably have to be enrolled at USC. Whereas now you can keep a running list of good books and videos on your notes app and your phone. That's what I do. And then later set aside time and visit YouTube and watch the Charlie Munger 2007 USC commencement speech. It's 37 minutes that's well worth your time. And YouTube is free with an internet connection. Use it. Another piece of life advice related to personal finance and investing. Number four, as fast as possible, work for someone who is in a lot of ways just like you. One person who thinks you resemble a younger version of themselves can make your whole career. This one's huge. Many people who are my age would love to share what they've learned over the course of their career, especially if they could pour what they know into a young person who's full of energy and ambition and resembles a younger version of themselves. This energizes the mentor, too. It's almost like another chance at youth. So my advice to 20-year-old me is to find that person as fast as possible. They will mentor you. They will groom you. And many of them will take you along for the ride as they ascend the ranks to VP and CEO. They're going to need a strong leader of men that they've groomed to work underneath them, men and women. Hopefully, they allow you to challenge them a little bit. There's nothing worse than a know-it-all at any age. So this goes both ways. I can tell you from my own experience as both a mentee and mentor, these relationships are very reciprocal to those who approach life and career with an open mind and a willingness to learn. It's beautiful. You conquer the world together. Number six, they say don't gamble with friends because it's an easy way to lose friends. This is true. Many, if not most people, cannot handle losing money to friends. And it's a shame because it's fun AF. (laughs) Within reason, it adds excitement to every game that you're playing. But not everyone has the mental capacity and the mental strength to keep the friendship separate. Their ego gets too invested. I was gambling with a buddy of mine and I lost five straight, 0 for 5. And he could tell it was starting to get me down. And he said, Brad, we don't have any emotional attachment to money. We lose gambling. And I thought, you're absolutely right. A bad mood is like body odor. It's infectious. It impacts everyone around you. How selfish not to take care of yourself to ensure that your bad mood from losing doesn't negatively impact everyone around you. So if you're going to gamble, it's fun. Be a gentleman about it. Pay your debts, but no emotional attachments to the money you lose. Some of my best memories are from gambling with friends. I say it's worth the gamble. Number nine, your family will always encourage you to play it safe rather than take risks. The reason is they share your pain of losing much more than they share in the fruits of your success. Always seek wise counsel, then draw your own conclusions. I have so many examples I could share here of when I took the route my family would have me take and was able to see what the other route would have been had I not taken their advice, barring some unforeseen tragedy, of course. We can all get hit by a bus or struck by lightning. But eventually, I learned to live my life on my own terms. It's my life. But they were always going to err on the side of playing it safe. And I'll bet your family is the same way. So just be aware of that. Seek their wise counsel, but then draw your own conclusions. Different generations have vastly different risk tolerances. This is natural. So take this into account when you make your final decision and be accountable for your ultimate decision. Be proud if you win and be grateful that you learned a valuable lesson if you don't win. It's part of the maturation process. Scrolling down, I'm actually surprised at how few of the pieces of life advice deal with personal finance and investing. 
Number 32 qualifies, but God may have made Hollywood celebrities a thing just to demonstrate that fame and fortune don't make for a happy life. The quest for more is a treadmill for which there is no satisfaction. I told this story on the Dr. Jorge Valdez episode, but two men were working in a cubicle and making $100,000 each and took a smoke break together. And as they were standing outside, there was a fancy restaurant across the street with valet parking. A guy with slick back hair and a custom suit and a Rolex watch pulls up in a Ferrari and tosses his keys to the valet. And as he did, he noticed the two cubicle dwellers across the street and kind of winked at him. And one of the guys says to the other, he says, whoa, don't you wish you had what that guy's got? And the other guy says, no, man, I've, I've already got something that guy will never have. And the other guy says, oh, yeah, what's that? And he says, enough. Number 33, learn to negotiate. Make it a study. All those classes in school and not one of them taught you to negotiate, something you'll be doing the rest of your life. Take six months out of your 20s and dedicate it to studying negotiation. I once worked on a team of 50 salespeople where the ability to negotiate could dramatically impact one's income and career trajectory. Guess how many studied negotiation? It's a rare skill set. I've been all around the world. The people who are most uncomfortable negotiating by far are women in America. I can't tell you how many women I have helped to negotiate business deals, salaries, raises, you name it. They just don't like it. And if they in any way can avoid doing it, they mostly will take that out. And of course, it hurts their income. And I'm generalizing, of course, there are exceptions. But women in America do not enjoy negotiating, generally speaking. And this is understandable based on evolutionary psychology. Women are more agreeable than men, about half a standard deviation. That means if you repeatedly pulled a random male stranger from a crowd of people and a random female stranger from a crowd, and you guessed that the female is more agreeable, you would be right 60% of the time. That may not sound like an overwhelming percentage, but for you baseball fans, it'd be like guessing whether in 2019 the Atlanta Braves were going to win their, their game that day. They won 97 games, thus had a 599 win percentage. Or for you Astros fans listening, they won 107 games, so they had a 66% chance of winning their games. So will the Astros win today? Where am I going with this? Well, in America, we don't have a negotiating culture. We don't enjoy it. Sometimes people look down their nose at people who try to negotiate, depending on the item, of course. We have unwritten rules for negotiating the same way baseball has unwritten rules for baseball. The unwritten rules of negotiating seem to be the price isn't negotiable unless it's a very big ticket item like a house or a car or a salary. And even then, we negotiate very, very little. For well over 99% of human history, though, everything was negotiated. Price tags weren't even a thing until late 19th century when shopkeepers no longer trusted their workforce to negotiate on their behalf. So they put price tags on everything, and we've gotten used to it. So we do well, though, to remember that next time we want to buy something from somewhere, if you ask for 15% off, you're very likely to get it. Negotiating is a skill set that you can learn just like any other. And when your income depends on your ability to negotiate, like it does when you're in sales, you would think people would want to learn that skill set. You would be incorrect. <laughs> people aren't lining up to do something that can be inherently psychologically discomforting. But your inability to negotiate or unwillingness to negotiate is probably harming you in more ways than you realize. I have a buddy who worked at the same job for over 10 years, 
And he made about the same amount of money as when he started. Why is that? Well, he's not the negotiating type. And they knew he wasn't going anywhere. How many times have you heard someone say, well, my company doesn't give raises or my company will only give a raise of X? For the person uttering those words, I would venture a guess to say that's probably true. But once you're proven to your present employer, once you've demonstrated that your value far exceeds what they agreed to pay you initially, you can't be exactly sure how much they're willing to pay you now. There's only so much they're going to pay somebody who's a prospective, talented employee before they know what you can really do. But now that you've demonstrated your abilities and skill set and your work ethic and problem-solving abilities, once all that far exceeds their wildest expectations, it's hard for them to gauge what you're really worth. But I'll tell you this, as a byproduct of increasing your value to your employer, you've also become a hotter commodity in the marketplace so that you're likely to be sought after by other employers. You may be there right now. It's a beautiful place to be. We call it leverage. Once you have leverage, you have no idea how much your company is willing to pay you, probably until you walk away. If your value to your employer far exceeds what they're paying you, and they have to go through the pain of interviewing and replacing and training somebody else, they're not going to let you go so easily. We're not talking about half the population that would find themselves in these circumstances. We're talking about the best of the best who when they turn in a resignation letter, the big, ba- the big boss is going to say four words. What will it take? That's where you want to be. If you've built a talent stack that's hard to find and everybody there likes and respects you, including your customers, they'd be stupid to let you go. <laughs> and if they do that, well, it's not where you want to be anyway. In all walks of life, you want to surround yourself with people who value you and value your time. And in the business world, you need to be paid fair market value for your time and skill set, which hopefully is increasing with time. So go get what you're worth. I promise you there are other high energy people with integrity and the business acumen who are also hoping to attract like-minded people like yourself. So keep building yourself up until you, until you find those people. They'll know a good thing when they see it and they'd be willing to pay for you. And it'll be a Lollapalooza effect of productivity and achievement and building massive wealth. Sometimes in corporate America, people's egos get in the way of doing a deal like that. But you'll find them. Keep at it. I could do an entire series on ego. and Probably I could do a full series on negotiation too. But for brevity's sake, I'll wrap it up here. I want to give you some keys to successful negotiation that I was able to apply to both my software and real estate career and I'm confident you'll find a place for them in your dealings. First, I should say that I was obsessed with being precise in my language. I recorded myself to reduce my verbal tics, so ums and uhs. I wanted to get better with every presentation, so I studied negotiation as soon as I entered the real world, and I quickly learned that almost nobody does this. But as I said, for brevity's sake, number one is slow down. Speed will kill you in a negotiation. Don't let the other person try to rush you for no reason. Oftentimes, they will place an artificial deadline on you. And a lot of times, it's just that, artificial. So be mindful of that. Number two would be emotionally detach yourself. You care, but not that much. Keep it light and fun. Negotiation can be fun. In a good negotiation, everybody wins. So it's fun. 
Number three would be strategically use silence. More often than not, the other person will jump in to fill that silence. Call it insecurity, call it lack of experience, but you want to be the one that's perfectly comfortable in silence. To you, there is no such thing as an awkward silence. The next thing, if you're asking, let's say $300,000, but they offer you $280,000, they've already made, or you have already made a $280,000 sale, right? Now you just need to make a $20,000 sale. So a question you might want to ask is, how can we come up with a solution that meets both our needs? Because you never want to split the difference, which is a great book on negotiation by Chris Foss. I recommend it. If you're at an impasse, you can always ask, what would you do if you were me? Usually, that question will yield all sorts of great information. Worst case, you can just say, boy, I wish you were me. And then you're just back to where you started. <laughs> so I hope this was helpful to you. I have one more in my 40 pieces of life advice. Actually, the last two are pretty self-explanatory. Number 38, on money. A man on the way to his first million sprints through soft sand while helping others build their sandcastles along the way. His second million is a stroll on the boardwalk while others build sandcastles for him. He still helps others build their castles, but his advice is more valuable than his labor. And then number 40, invest well. You can't believe what you can see and do once you get money out of the way. I hope this was helpful to you. I know that money tends to bewilder many of us how to save it earn it, share it, invest it. We interact with money every day. If for some reason, in America especially, we're hesitant to talk about it. Why is money so taboo? Well, I imagine it's because money's accompanied by so many emotions, not least of which is envy. Envy when we see our friends flashing fancy cars on social media or going on their fourth filtered vacation this year or even fear that we'll run out of money, or stress about whether we'll be able to afford a house or retire someday, or excitement when you land a new job and it comes with a fat pay raise, or confusion when we try to determine what to do with that extra money so we don't spend it, we want to invest it so it'll grow, but we're not sure how to do that. So we read books and listen to podcasts. And there's also boredom associated with money. Many professions are notorious, like doctors and engineers, for not managing money well, and they end up living paycheck to paycheck. A good thing to remember about money is that more money doesn't necessarily make you happier, and that there will always be a tension between having enough and wanting more. That's something we all wrestle with. Before my outro music starts playing, I'm going to make some quick promises to you. This is based on my own life experience, especially what I learned traveling to the far corners of the earth. And the first one is, there are people in this world who have much less than you who are also happier. My next promise is, true wealth is being content with what you have. Another promise is, the best thing you can do with money is buy your time. Acquire time wealth. And my last promise is this, the best place to try to earn money so that you can invest your way to time wealth and gain total freedom over how you spend your day is America.
Friends, thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please copy the link and send it to a friend. Also, please feel free to email or DM me with any questions, comments, feedback. I've never received one email or DM from a listener that I didn't reply to. I can be found on Instagram and Twitter at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. 